Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 2nd, 2022, a Thursday. It's been quite a week. We've done a couple of shows on parenting, grown-ups and children. Earlier this week, I talked to Kimberly Wolf. Actually, I think it was yesterday. It seems like a long week. She's written a book called uh, Talk With Her, suggesting that the role of fathers is to talk to their daughters rather than keep stum, and that good parenting involves a lot of talk. This is an interesting show with a very talented young writer, Anna Malaika Tubbs, yeah, written this wonderful new book, The Three Mothers, which explains the success and meaning and identity of Malcolm X, James Baldwin and Martin Luther King in terms of their mothers, a different kind of book on parenting and what it means to be an adult. My guest today has spent her career in part talking about what it means to be an adult. Many of you will be familiar with uh, her first best-selling book, How to Raise an Adult, uh, Break Free of the Overparenting Trap and Prepare Your Kid for Success. Her latest book on this theme is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. She is an adult and she's an expert on adulthood. And she is talking to us from Palo Alto in California, just down the peninsula from where I am in San Francisco. Julie, welcome. Julie uh, Lithcott-Hames. Uh, Julie, let's begin with an easy question. What is an adult? What does that mean? I'm going to answer that question. But first, Andrew, I want to thank you for having me. I also need to say that Anna Malika Tubbs, whose book you featured a few moments ago and on an earlier episode, as I gather, she was one of my students at Stanford when I was freshman dean. So it's been such a joy to watch her make her way um, through a PhD program and into this space of honoring the work of women and mothers um, by pointing up the evidence of how foundationally influential they were in the lives of, as it happens, Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. So shout out to Anna Malika Tubbs for sure. What is an adult? Um, well, you're either in a child, you, you either are a child or an adult. A child is uh, largely the responsibility of others. An adult is largely responsible for themselves. That's the huge shift that takes place slowly over time in a typical healthy childhood. A child gains more and more skills, gets more and more confident, more and more competent, more and more resilient, clearer that, hey, this is my life and I get to figure it out. I have to work hard and get back up when I fall, but I get to make my own choices. And an adult with all of that in their possession is like, aha, it's my life. Yay. I'm nobody's project. I'm not a dog on a leash. I choose the direction in which my life will go. It's up to me. Julie, would it be fair to say that in some cultures, perhaps more traditional ones, there's a very clear division, demarcation between childhood and adulthood. But in America, where increasingly older people dress like teenagers and teenagers dominate the airwaves and social media platforms. There's increasingly a, a blur between what it means to be an adult and what it means to be a child. 
Yeah, I think as I hear you say that, Andrew, I feel like you're evoking norms from long ago. There certainly was a time, let's go back to the 20th century, when we had these very formal distinctions between children and parents or children and elders. Um, and there were a lot of rules associated with who could talk to whom and who couldn't and whatnot. And we've done some good in dismantling some of those rigid hierarchies. You know, for example, if you're elderly grandfather or uncle is insisting on hugging and kissing you that might have been required in 1950 or even 1980 but now in 2022 we know hey kids are allowed to have boundaries around their bodies and so we've we've dismantled some of these formal distinctions um you mentioned other cultures i think thought immediately of cultures like judaism that has a bar bat mitzvah at a certain age, 13, mm. I think it is, or Catholicism, a first communion, and the myriad other cultures that have what we would call a rite of passage to signal, hey, you're no longer a child, you're an adult. Typically, those rites happen in the early teenage years um, or even before 10, 11, 12. And one has to ask, wait a minute, are they really adults? Is that what we're saying? And I think we're not saying you're now entirely responsible for yourself, which is more like an 18, 20, 22 25, 29 kind of thing. Um, but we are saying, hey, we're signaling that stuff is changing and your body's changing, your right to privacy is changing, but also your responsibilities are leveling up. Um, so there isn't a clear demarcation these days other than the DMV and what it says about how old you need to be to rent a car or you know, the local or state or federal laws that say how old you need to be to drink or to vote or to go to war or possess a gun. You know, there are these sort of laws that try to put a stamp on when adulting happens. But I would say that's not what this is about. It's a frame of mind. Do you wake up and know, hey, I'm responsible for myself and there's a lot of choice and freedom and maybe fun in that, but there's also responsibility inherent in that. And can I see that being responsible, being the responsible one, being the crap where the adults, oh shit, it's me, Right. That's scary in the moment, but then you handle it somehow, however imperfectly you get through it. And then you're like, damn, I handled that. I guess I am an adult. Judy, you are you right? And, and, and I and I noted two, two of these books, How to Raise an Adult, which I assume is written for parents. And then Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, which in part is written for people wanting to be adults. <laughs> I assume it's written both for children and uh parents. not children not children it's definitely uh 18 plus or a very mature well i think of plus. a child still as 18 maybe oh. it's again a, okay. my language okay but um and 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 you're probably gonna beat me up for this one too um <laughs> is there a crisis when it comes to this transition from being an adolescent a child a growing person into an adult in America. Is that what has triggered your work and your success? Yes, Andrew. First of all, I'm not beating you up. I'm not trying to no, beat I you want up. to be beaten up. That's why you're on the show. Oh, really? I only want the people oh, who beat me up. I didn't know you That's were That's what being work. an adult is, isn't it? Wanting <laughs> to be beaten up, do you? Yeah. Uh, no. Um, is there a crisis in America? I would say yes. And it's not just America. I've taken my first book, How to Raise an Adult, which is on the harm of overparenting or what we might call helicopter parenting or even better micromanagement parenting 
I have been on tour in England with that book. I've been to Australia with that book. I've been to Hong Kong with that book. I've been to Mexico with that book. And it's it's behind me in a bunch of different languages because other countries, Ukraine, Russia, Finland have decided, hey, we got that problem too. So the crisis of overparenting, which looks like it helps kids, this is the sort of, I will handle every little moment. I will talk to your teacher, yell at your teacher, do your homework. I will yell at your coach. I will make sure all your tasks are handled. If you forget them, I will be your concierge and handle them. I will set your path, set you on the path, push you from behind, drag you from the front, all of that. And I'll worry about you constantly and always need to know where you are and always need to check up and invade your the bubble of you with my presence. All of that is not just an American thing. But it is very much an American thing, particularly in communities that have privilege where parents have the time and money to invest in micromanaging the kids every moment. It looks like it helps because you advance the ball, you get the kid to the next level or stage or moment because you basically made it happen, but you are depriving the child of developing the skill to do those things and the agency, the psychological sense of, ah, I can do things the resilience that comes from screwing things up and fixing it and moving on. So the long-term pain associated with the short-term gain of all this overhelp has led to a crisis in, uh, in children becoming adolescents, becoming young adults, becoming adults. They lack agency, they lack resilience, and that leads to anxiety and it leads to depression. It also deprives them of developing executive function. So this weird new normal way of parenting in many communities harms kids. And that's what my first book and my Ted talk were on. But I've always, I'm the former college Dean. I'm not a parenting expert. I'm a college Dean at a university, you know, near you, Stanford. I was not a very good one, right? Not a very good one. Not as good as Cal. I know you're going to say that. Um, beat Cal go bears. Okay. Now we've done it. Um, uh, I was rooting for students. I was like, Hey, why are these really smart kids, whether they're at Cal or Stanford or anywhere, so micromanage what's going on why is that i was noticing how they were undermined in their capacities and so i've always been rooting for the young people to thrive so the parenting book was hey parents get out of kids way the new book your turn and i'm going on a national I'm taking myself in my car around america this fall with this book to meet young people where they are this book is me rooting for them like you've got this it is scary but i'm rooting for you and you can do it we did a show, uh, and, and your, your your stuff really resonates on on many levels, Julie. We did a show with Daniel Markovitz, who's an old friend, teaches at Yale Law School. He's a big critic of the meritocracy, and like you, he suggests that the kids at Yale and Harvard and Stanford are miserable because they're perhaps overparented or too much pressure. We've done lots of shows on this. We did one with another East Bay guy, Matt Feeney. I don't know if you know his book, uh, Little Platoons. Mm -hmm. uh, which is critical of overparenting. How would you explain, Julie, the the helicopter parent? Why is it happening? Why is there a whole generation of upper class, mostly white parents? I don't know whether it's more men than women who are so obsessed with their kids. Well, I have a lot of opinions. Uh, <laughs> uh, we all love our kids. Let's just put that as a pin in the well ground. that's given right it's given but except, I, I except, it that, because... uh, except when they misbehave which is most of the time right <laughs> and let me say i'm a parent myself so i have a 22 year old son and 20 year old daughter so i'm in it 
And I was able to name and notice the problem, but also realize I was perpetuating it in my own house. So I have a lot of empathy uh, for parents who find themselves in this trap. Um, so we love our kids and we think this is what love looks like over the last three decades. Love looks like over attending your kids. If you don't show up at every soccer practice, the other parents think you're negligent. Okay. We become those people. And so parents today are just parenting the way their community is parenting. It was the boomers who started parenting this way. Really ironically, Andrew, they questioned authority as young adults in really important ways. Then when they became parents, they began questioning authority on behalf of their kids, undermining their kids' ability to advocate for themselves. Um, so these are the parents who argue with the referee when their kids doesn't, don't absolutely. get a goal. So we love them. We're also very afraid of the 21st century AI, robots, uh, macroeconomic issues, violence, uh, global warming. All of these things make us afraid, and rightly so. And I mean, if you're afraid, you're afraid. But my response to that is, if you think the world is scarier, your kid needs to be stronger than you were, not weaker, not held by your hand. We need to know our kids can thrive when we're dead, not that they always relied on us to do everything. And the final factor, love, fear, the final factor is ego. Our kids are our vanity project, right? We need the bumper sticker for the back of our car with the name of the air quotes, right college on it to impress all the drivers behind us with how amazing we are. I mean, our kid is, right? Our kid is like a dog. We've entered in the Westminster dog show. You know, we're going for best in, in show. Our kid is the dog, but we bring home the trophy. It's a fragileness. It's, we've decided, we've set so much time, we put so much time into cultivating and curating our kids in families that are middle-class, upper middle-class and beyond. They are the evidence of our worth. Now, nobody would actually say that out loud, but many of us suffer from that psychologically. So the beautiful message here is the antidote is therapy. Go get yourself some therapy and figure out why you're treating your kid like a pet dog or a you know highly bred <laughs> dog or racehorse. Get a life and your kid can get one too. Is there also a problem with a, almost like the, the, the fetishization of the family in upper class America? Did a show with Emily Oster. I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She writes books about the family firm, data-driven guide, debated decision-making in the early school years. She's a professor at a business school. She seems to be trying to make the family or transform the family into a corporation. And it seems one of the weird consequences of uh, this obsession with the family yeah. as an institution in upper middle class America yeah. uh, yeah. is that the children suffer, whereas in previous generations, the family wasn't that big a deal. Yeah, I love your language, fetishizing family. I'm writing it down. Um, you know, I'm, I haven't read Emily Oster's book and I'm troubled by the corporatization of the family. And I have some thoughts. Um, many of us women are far more educated and have had far more workplace professional career opportunity than our mothers or grandmothers had. Just that's a given. And yet if we've chosen or and then if we've chosen to also have children, we're now in this space of am I using my education? You know, am I bringing my smarts to the table? And frankly, this is just my anecdotal observation. I see so many moms caught in that. Eddie of sort of, am I, you know, 
how do I prove I have this brain? Well, I'm going to turn the PTA into, you know, my little private enterprise, or I'm going to turn the family into my private enterprise where the kids grades become the metrics and deliverables of my efforts as a mom or as a parent. If, you know, I know it's not, it's obviously not just moms, it's parents of all genders. So the fetishization, I love that language because it's the family what I'm able to produce, procure, demonstrate is happening with and for and from my family is, again, the evidence of my worth. But I think the other reason that we're able to do this now is the sheer preciousness of each child. In a literal sense, a century ago, women were routinely having 10 children, just to pick a number out of the air, lots and lots they were having, there was no birth control. There was very little access to that, right? It was like you, you, you had children and that's what you did. That was all. And they didn't all live and you knew they wouldn't. Some of them didn't, you know, were, didn't survive their birth. They didn't survive their first year. They didn't survive to year five. There were diseases we now have vaccines for. Like we've made childhood safer, more children live, but women also have control over, Hey, how many am I going to have? And it's also, we're dealing with fertility issues. So maybe it's harder to conceive. And so if you have, let's say, gone through in vitro, trying for one kid, and you have carefully selected the embryo most likely to survive and then implanted it, and you've watched that thing develop every moment, how are you going to stop hovering over it and paying attention to every minute detail once they're actually alive? Right. And, and this, this is all part of the, the socioeconomic cleavage uh, that I know you, you're interested in, you write about. The, it's the you know the the woman the, the the career woman in her late thirties or forties who does that stuff has the one child who's economically uh, independent who creates the cult of their own child, whereas it's the the teenage mother perhaps who isn't married from different kind of communities. So we have an increasing cleavage in the value of children in. Fat, quote unquote families, which is only compounding all the problems you write about, and indeed all the problems of inequality in America. Is that fair? Yeah, I think it is really fair. Um, look, there's a that you just opened a door to a really big question. You know, America and the value of children. You know, here we are talking on June second, and right. we've had yet another absolutely horrific. Um, mass shooting at an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas. And I'm so, we all are crying out within ourselves for how the hell are we going to ensure that our children can get out of this American childhood alive. And I think what's interesting there is, you know, mass shootings tend to happen in um, middle-class communities. You know, we used to think that we used to think that kids who might die from shootings were sort of poor, urban, what have you. And that happens. And also we have this middle-class situation where we think we've bought a ticket to a better life and yet our kids can still get shot up at their schools. And so I'm hoping actually that the fact that this cuts across different communities might be a way for us to bring ourselves back together. These partisan divides are harming our children. And right. if we could value every child, um, you know, maybe that's something we could all get together on. In fact, I'm going to be part of a conversation 
next week of authors and leaders talking about are are we being good ancestors to our kids kids you know let's look ahead a generation or two right. even to like what do they need right but, but the idea ancestors. of good ancestors is an important concept we right? had roman krasnarich Nice. And if you're familiar with his uh, book, How to Be a Good Ancestor, yes, he's a British exactly. based That's what writer. we're invoking. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting you you you, you put it in that language. Uh, I, I have some friends who are in, going through a horrible divorce, and I keep on saying to them, you need to think of the child, because if you don't, the child is going to grow up hating you. And perhaps that's the argument to make to America, both of left and right. Mm. is think of it as a bad marriage and think of one's responsibility to one's huh. child. Uh, Julie, you like my use of the uh, the F words. I'm <laughs> going to use it again in terms of the fetishization of life itself. You, you brought up America's crisis of mass killing. The other crisis or the other of the many crises affecting America now is this debate over abortion and the right to life. How does that play in? To, to your world and your interest in making, forcing parents to be more adult and, and, and forcing also agency in children. It, it seems to me to be a connection, again, between this fetishization of life and the fact that we're mostly bad parents and we're bringing up unhappy children. So the fetishization of life, I'm pro-choice and I respect the fact that not everybody is, but... I'm stunned by how silent the pro-life community can be about actual living humans, uh, humans living outside the womb, breathing. And I wish that the pro-life rhetoric about the sanctity of life and the preciousness of every life extended beyond birth because we could sure use their help and their dollars and their activism and passion around ensuring that every child it has a decent shelter and food and a decent public education and healthcare. You know, I'm a believer in those things for the living. And I would, I wish we could figure out a way to, to knit these narratives together. Cause I believe life is, is um, sacred and um, precious too. I happen to think that we all should be in charge of our own body and what happens to it and with it. I don't think as a woman, I'm a vessel for anybody, um, if I choose to have a child, great. And if I choose not to, I want that choice. And I know I'm elevating the rights and bodies of women over anything that's growing within their bodies. That's my belief system. Um, you know, so I, uh, ah, what a, what a big, beautiful question. I think I'll just end there. Well, we've talked a lot about the parents. Let's talk about the kids. Your latest book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. You said you're about to do a road tour talking to kids. What is the, the current, and again, I know this is a dumb question, Julie, <laughs> but what is the current condition of American kids? Are they as miserable, as anxious as some of the more sensationalist press presents? They are most definitely warriors who have gone through a hell of a lot more than most of us did. In warriors our or warriors? Both. They're both. And look, it's not their fault. Let me frame it this way. The first, not the first, but a very public early mass shooting in a high school, Columbine, Colorado, 1999. Okay. Kids who are young adults who are 27 and younger were five to zero to unborn when that happened. They grew up with a public school system that had active shooter drills 
Okay. They were taught early on from kindergarten on everybody in this country, 27 and younger was raised with the normalcy that we need to prepare for the fact that a shooter may come to try to kill you in your elementary school. Now, I don't know who has studied the psychological effect of that, but I don't think it takes a PhD in psychology to say, wow, that must have fucked up a lot of kids. But the omnipresent fear, not of a bully or of a bad grade, but of a shooter who's intent with an automatic weapon on killing you, that's normal for anyone under 27. And that has shaped them. In addition, macroeconomic forces have changed. So their grandparents are like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have a job yet? Why haven't you moved out of the house? And it's like, yo, grandpa, it's not 1950. In my community, in your community, wages and salaries have not kept up with cost of living. So unlike for prior generations, it is no guarantee that you, even with a great college degree in hand, that you can afford to rent a one-bedroom apartment where you're working. So we've done that. We have created a system that is out of whack and inhospitable to young. And I've mentioned just two factors, their mental health. Um, oh, I didn't mention the COVID pandemic, which has been an enormous fraction of their lives. If they're 20, it's been a 10th of their life, you know, that they were indoors and masked and distant from the very humans that they need to be with in order to grow and develop into a healthy person. And so, yes, they're they've been put through a lot and yes, they're different. And I call them warriors because of what they've been through. And they're also warriors for, I think, very valid reasons. Look, we can't, we can't critique an entire generation. We have to be willing to look at what changed such that an entire generation seems really, really different. What about the role of work? Julie, in all this, we've done lots of shows about work. I did a show last week with Marcus Buckingham, interesting uh, author and entrepreneur, love and work, how to find what you love, love what you do and do it for the rest of your life. It seems to me, and again, I speak as a parent and just someone who talks a lot to lots of different people, that it's taken for granted that becoming an adult is assumed to be connected with finding a career, a calling that you love. Have we oversold this to the kids? Is this a lie, essentially? And are they discovering it, which is another reason for their, for their crises, for their fragility? No, I don't think it's a lie. I do think there it does smack of middle class and upper middle class and rich privilege and that, oh, you should do what you love. Well, there are a lot of people who are listening like, yo, I'm poor, I'm working class. It'd be nice to do what I love, but right now I'm just trying to make rent. I do still think there's value in setting out the possibility that one can find work in the way I define it um, is what are you good at and what do you love? What's the Venn diagram overlap of those two circles? If you're just good at it, you f but you don't love it, you feel like a drone going through the motions in your own life. If you just love it, but aren't any good at it and don't have many prospects for getting better at it, it should be your hobby, not the thing that's going to be your career because you're probably not going to kind of make it. So I think I, I tell everybody, and, and my new book, Your Turn, is infused with this message of finding that overlap of what you're good at and what you love. I don't think it's a burden. I don't think it's selling them a bill of goods. 
I think it's an invitation that like, yes, better things are out there. And when you dare to ask yourself, wait, what am I good at? And what do I also love? And how can I, you know, find a job that's at the intersection of those things? That's where their agency comes in. Like, oh yeah, I have a lot of choice in this actually. You know, this isn't about, let me have the career that pays me the most amount of dollars. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying find the career, the calling, the passion, whatever it is, where you wake up every day and like, you know what? I really like this work and I'm good at it. Wow, that's a pretty darn good life. You use the A word agency. What about the R word, um, Julie, risk? Risk. Uh, are, 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 is our culture teaching children to be too conservative? Again, you brought up the irony of a countercultural yeah. uh, new generation, which has, yeah. Has, yeah. Has, has, has been very conservative. Well, let's, um, is, yeah. is there a, are we missing an element of teaching yeah. children risk? Absolutely. Absolutely. So you said the R word and I thought you were going to say resilience and they go together. Oh, right? I hate that, that word, resilience. resilience. Well, but it's important because resilience is, if agency is, I can do stuff. Right. Resilience is like, I can cope when shit goes wrong and shit will go wrong. And our kids need to know that. And if we've overparented, if we've hovered over every moment and made sure nothing went wrong, then they become these chronologically adult beings who don't have the resilience or the psychological strength, to use a different word, to say to themselves, hey, this sucks, but I'm going to be okay because I know that because I've been through stuff before. Okay, so they need both of these things. And risk taking is inherent to the process of growth. You know, the people at Global Citizen Year who run the nation's premier gap year program, in my view, I'm biased, I used to be on their board. They talk about there's your comfort zone, there's your stretch zone and your panic zone. Your comfort zone is like you're in your house, you're on your couch, you're just watching Netflix, you know, you're fine, but you're not learning. Your comfort zone, your stretch zone is where you're going to step out, take a few risks and grow. And the panic zone is like, oh my gosh, this situation is terrifying. I'm not sure I'm going to live. We don't want to push kids there. Life may do that, but we don't want to intentionally do that. But this broadband called the stretch zone is full of some risks that must be taken so that the human can show themselves, look what I just did. I just tried that and I'm still here, you know? Yeah, and you lost, but you still survive. I mean, yes, you know, there's a fetish of failure in, uh, in Silicon Valley, but that's what risk requires. Do we need to get rid of some words, Julie? We've talked about resilience and agency. <laughs> The worst A word, in my view, which has corrupted an entire generation, is authenticity. Do we need to give up these kind of silly words when it ter in terms of trying to make children, adults, trying to figure out who they are and what they want to be? I think any word that gets seized by uh, the population and becomes used frequently then dies its own... Um, death, right? We don't like to say authenticity or authentic anymore because it's overused. It was a great word before it was overused. Um, as is there such a thing as an authentic child or an authentic adult or an authentic development? It's such a, an absurd notion. I disagree with you vehemently, but maybe we're using a different definition for that word. So I'll tell you mine and you tell me yours. To me, authenticity is you're actually behaving in a way that emanates from your sense of what you want, what you value, what you believe in, in contrast to a performance, which is mm. I need to say this or be this or do this to be okay with others. To me, authenticity is you do you 
be the best you you can be, but don't let it be a performance for the sake of meeting others' approval or getting their applause. Well, I'm not going to take you on on the authentic, in the authentic, authenticity wars. Let's end with a note about Stanford. You 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 noted <laughs> earlier that you taught um, uh, the author of uh, uh, Three Mothers uh, yeah. as an undergraduate. Wonderful woman. She yeah. interviewed her uh, earlier this week. Anna Malika Tubbs, the author yeah. of Three Mothers. Not everyone at Stanford, um, Julie, is as wonderful as as Anna. Um, we had. Uh, Joshua Browder, one of Silicon Valley's most um, most uh, promising entrepreneurs, young entrepreneurs on the show uh, recently, talking about his company, Do Not Pay. We also had three Stanford professors on recently, Rob Reich, Marin Sahami, Jeremy mm-hmm. Weinstein, a book about system error, where big tech went wrong and how we can reboot. Sahami in particular, I know, I'm, I'm sure you know him, he teaches a very popular Yeah. Introductory ethics course at Stanford. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting about the System Error book is it begins with some references to Joshua Brown, who's a remarkable young man, a very likable, smart young man, but they're critical of Do Not Pay because of its absence of civic responsibility. They think it encourages people not to pay their parking tickets, which in turn results in a kind of crisis of local administration. Uh, and, And they talk about the role of ethics at the undergraduate level at Stanford. Are top universities like Stanford, when I say top, I I mean that in quotation marks, of course, Um, are top universities like Stanford, are they doing a good enough job teaching kids ethics, responsibility, the young Joshua Browders of the world who are going to grow up to be Mark Zuckerbergs and Steve Jobs? Are we doing a good enough job? And Stanford's particularly relevant because, of course, you're teaching the next generation of Silicon Valley billionaires. Well, it's I love that you pointed up these three guys. Rob Reich is actually a friend of mine. I know Maron taught the most popular CS course on campus for a long time. I left 10 years ago. I can't really speak to what the, the that institution or any institution is doing now. But here's my impression. Um, a place like your alma mater, Cal, or mine, Stanford, or any other, can produce graduates of all stripes. Right? So there were Stanford graduates who participated in the insurrection on the Capitol. Um, and there are Stanford graduates who are wholly opposed to that. And I'm not sure we can attribute their Stanfordness to what they did. Um, I do think the universities know that their obligation is to teach ethics alongside everything else. I think they continually work at the best way to do that. I think they lament the fact that high schools don't seem to be teaching civics anymore or ethics. Uh, you know, we're not, I think everybody's asking, why don't the kids seem to know what it means to be a thoughtful, cooperative member of a society, whose job is that? Is it family? Is it church, religion? Is it, is it K-12? Is it college? Um, I think we're all in agreement that we could use a lot more ethics uh, swimming around with us here um, as we try not to drown. Um, And I think, you know, the the institutions of higher ed will, will always be the place where one can, unless one approaches it as a simply utilitarian thing. Let me get my degree as quickly as I can you're willing to sit and linger for a moment and have these bigger questions about who are we, why are we here? What obligation do we have to the self and to others? Um, You know, that's what college is for, I think. So I hope you can get your CS degree, but also pick up, uh, you know, if not a a minor in ethics, at least a set of conversations thoughtfully moderated where you've been forced to contemplate what matters most. And finally, finally, I just want to 
a, a quick response to you on the idea of national service. I've written some stuff and I'm not alone here suggesting that it might be the only way to stitch America back together. Maybe it's not that just the kids, Julie, who need national service. Maybe it's the parents as well. Absolutely. You know, we know from research from all kinds of people that um, service being doing something meaningful that it has a purpose that is not your own um, is really good for our own mental health. It's good. You know, when, when we serve, we obviously achieve some good things for society or other people or a cause, but it also gives our life meaning as a tool. wrote about in being mortal. So I would love to see us respond to this very scary moment with a sort of not a call to arms because no, none of us wants to be more armed, I think, than folks already are, but a call to action, a call to um, commitment, a call to um, togetherness. Uh, and I think service would be an absolutely fabulous thing. All right, that's great stuff from Julie Lithcott-Haynes, the author of How to Raise an Adult, her first big success. Her latest book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult, written more for kids. She's also written uh, Real American, a memoir. Maybe we can do that one, uh, Julie, on another show. Thank you so much. Real honor to talk to you. Um, finally, uh, what else are you reading in addition to um, your books? What would you suggest people read in this difficult time for America? June 2022. Yeah. Um, so I'm holding two books here that I think in some ways uh, relate. As an author, uh, you know, as you know, authors get to read the early work. We're asked to support other authors' work. We're asked to maybe blurb it. And these are two books I happen to blurb, so I'm biased. But uh, mm. one is Ibram X. Kendi's latest book. If this wow. man is the most prolific nonfiction writer, certainly of our time, he just keeps coming out with books, whether board books for babies or books for grown-ups. And you blurred that one? I did. How to Raise an Anti-Racist. So this is Ibram Ooh. with his brilliance around anti-racism. I think he is the leading scholar on that subject, certainly in my mind. He's really brought some memoir to it. So he talks about being a parent of his daughter and the newness of that and, and having to ask himself the very questions he can quite objectively ask and offer answers to to others. He's now a parent trying to embody the right behaviors and attitudes in his home, in his language, as he tries to raise this wonderful child. So we get insight from a deeper well. I think his parental well comes up in this, in addition to his expertise. Yeah, it's um, interesting. We did a show with uh, Melinda Wenamoya last year, How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, nice. uh, which is a slightly different title, but a similar yeah, theme. I, uh, right. You'll have to right. introduce me to him. To I'd love Abram. to get him on the show. Oh, that'd be amazing. The other is Miss Chloe. Sorry, the camera does it backwards. Yeah. A Literary Friendship with Toni Morrison by the novelist A.J. Verdell. Um, Miss Chloe was the real name of Toni Morrison. And A.J. called her Miss Chloe. And they had a... Um, sort of a mentoring relationship. Uh, Toni Morrison, much older than AJ. AJ is also a novelist. Toni Morrison becomes the grand dame of literature. And AJ is coming up, you know, sort of on, on that path in life. And you get insight into what Toni Morrison is actually like. You get these stories set in private moments of conversation. You get her personality, Toni Morrison's. You get her quirks and foibles. This woman, so many of us revere, because of who she is on the page, turns out to be also incredibly human and incredibly uh, complex with her with her quirks and foibles. And those come out on the page. So if you're a fan of Toni Morrison, 
I really highly recommend AJ Verdell's new book, Miss Chloe, which is going to give you kind of a peek within um, to the pages of, you know, the life of this amazing novelist.